Welcome to Healthcare Upside Down with your host, Dr. Nick Vanterhaven, and brought to you by ECG Management Consultants. You can learn more about the show on the program's page at healthcarenowradio.com or on our blog at ecgmc.com hud. The U.S. spends more on healthcare per capita than any other country on the planet. So why don't we have superior outcomes? Why haven't the principles of capitalism prevailed? And why do American consumers have so much trouble accessing and paying for healthcare? Each week, Healthcare Upside Down will dive into these and other issues with ECG principal, Dr. Nick, and guest panelists as they discuss the upsides and downsides of healthcare in the U.S. and how to make the system work for everyone. And we end with your better pill to swallow, the conclusion to today's episode with insights on challenges and changes that improve healthcare. Now here's your host, Dr. Nick. Healthcare costs have been rising every year for more than 60 years and continue to do so, and not just in the United States of America, although here in the US the problem is more acute and larger than in other countries. All this despite the backdrop of what is an unsustainable economic position and multiple attempts and strategies to rein in these costs. Where does the US fall relative to other countries? In this particular case, they are clearly number one, and not in a good way, with healthcare costing almost twice the next closest comparable country, all the while not seeing the positive results one would expect of this large spend. We cannot afford to stay this financial course, so how do we go about reining in these costs? The system built after the Second World War has been based on volume of activity, but that metric and driver is not working and creates undesirable behavior in multiple elements of the healthcare system. The shift to value-based care holds much promise, paying on the basis of value that creates an alignment of incentives between all the participants in healthcare, the patient, the clinicians, and the payers. That approach has been slow in coming hovering at almost one-third of care being delivered this way, despite multiple incentives or carrots, and even some attempts at sticks to create more adoption. Meanwhile, the juggernaut of healthcare and its multiple interests continue to resist the change with the misplaced belief or faith in status quo as the path to economic survival in the competitive healthcare marketplace. But COVID-19 wreaked havoc and displaced many previously misheld perspectives and demonstrated that those clinical services who were focused on value over volume did much better throughout the pandemic. With the continued impact of the virus being felt throughout the world and not likely to disappear anytime soon as we move to an endemic status, there is wide open opportunities to bring lasting change to our healthcare system here in the US and around the world by learning from those experiences and applying the knowledge persistently. Join me on Healthcare Upside Down podcast as I talk with Jane Sarason Khan, health economist, advisor, trend weaver, and global educator who has lived at the nexus of healthcare and technology, delivering advice to global clients who all want to achieve lower costs whilst delivering equitable, readily accessible healthcare. Hi, Jane. Welcome to the show. Dr. Nick, happy to see you. So you're a health economist. You've been in this game for a long time. <laughs> Forgive me. 
but the only thing I've seen throughout the course of history is the rising cost, particularly in the US, I think that's true in other countries, of healthcare costs as represented as a percentage of GDP. Is this train ever going to stop? Do we have a solution in sight? I think finally we do. Uh, if we get smart about it and, and uh, try to really arm wrestle the beast down, this, this medically uh, industrial complex, which is how the thing was built since World War II to be volume based. So we pay on the basis of volume, but as we start to pay on the basis of value, results, outcomes, bundling, lots of different methods under this umbrella called value-based care, we start to uh, adopt systems and processes and technologies uh, like one I know that you have in your possession uh, that measures uh, uh, various metrics uh, like a band, like a smart bandage does. Um, once we start paying on the basis of value, we have an incentive to align the interests between patients and providers and payers. But until we start paying that way, reimbursing that way, thinking that way in terms of doing the best for the patient and her family uh, and providers, thinking about the quadruple aim, um, we have this uh, cost increasing model, uh, and that is uniquely uh, American, though costs are going up around the world based on aging technology and inefficiencies, but not as ratcheting up fast hockey stick style uh, as it had been. COVID brought costs down. That's an illusion because we're going to catch up with that next year in terms of medical trend claims and such, and the postponed care that happened. So we're gonna have excess deaths, which is not a pretty phrase. People dying who may have lived because they postponed care for cancer, for your colonoscopy or mammogram in terms of prevention and getting um, your diagnosis later from stage two to stage four, et cetera. So it's not going to be a happy time in terms of costs looking at 2022 and medical trend. But no, this is the way our beast was built to be volume based. Uh, if, you see, if you have a hammer, everything you see looks like a nail kind of thing. If you're an orthopedic surgeon, uh, no offense to them. This is how incentives have, have been built. But things are changing because we learned in COVID, one of the lessons, and there are lessons that we need to heed because it was so painful. Let's learn and not repeat mistakes. What we learned in COVID and the pandemic is that providers who had taken on value did much better financially than those that were largely volume-based because they were already using telehealth, self-care, driving health literacy, patient portals, text messaging, voice, and old-fashioned technology, which works really well with lots of patients. So now we see the American Telemedicine Association, ACA, under the leadership of my friend, Anmon Johnson, saying telehealth is health, people, and let's align incentives to get more virtual care in the right, with the right patient, the right time, the right condition. And we're gathering data as we speak on what's working, what doesn't work, so that we can start to have protocols and evidence-based um, prescribing of virtual care and other forms of self-care at home. So I, I've got to push back in part because what I've seen, and you know, you bring up a couple of things. So COVID essentially exposed 
the, the inadequacies of our system and also showed us that all these things that we've had in other areas like telehealth, you know, being two years away for the last 10 years and it was still two years away, right up until COVID and then suddenly everybody goes, oh my goodness, this stuff works, we should use it. But in the recent past, we've just seen the pullback on the authorizations or the expiration, let's call it, you know, whichever, it doesn't matter, to say, oh, no, now we're out of COVID, we're going to stop that. So it feels like maybe we haven't learned. So I, I, are we going to see some progression there or, or is there some strength in the ability to move that forward? And the other area around this for me is that whilst we did all of this and, and were able to see this in COVID, I feel like we have a short-term memory and that gargantuan giant keeps tugging because you're pulling at the purse strings of those different groups and they're going to fight back. Yeah. Yeah. We're, we're, we're definitely seeing the fight back already in terms of, of looking for uh, paying parity for a telehealth visit. Um, it depends on the payer. Obviously, we're, we closely watched Medicare and Medicaid where the public payers go, commercial payers had tended to go. That I don't think will hold true depending on the payer because some payers, you know, United Healthcare looks very different than Cigna, different business models emerging in different payers. Aetna being part of CVS, having the primary care clinics to lean on, telehealth, mental health. So let me, let me go back to part A of the question uh, with respect to mental health. The one area of virtual care that is pretty sustaining has been in telemental health, which is terrific because we've had such an undersupply of therapists in much of the, the US. We've also had the stigma of mental health, which uh, is eroding, thank goodness, the stigma that is eroding. Um, and so most of us also saying, you know what? I got levels of anxiety and depression I didn't know I had before. That's been a great leveler. And I say great meaning um, a, a, a fair uh, and equitable lever across lots of people. You know, uh, anxiety and depression is sort of what, what how, how we live now. Um, and so we saw the, re the uh, quick prescribing of sleep drugs, uh, antidepressives, anti-anxieties early on April, May in 2020 from Express Scripts data that I often refer to. But I think we're seeing sustained use of virtual care for mental health and that will continue. Lots of funding going into that area in digital health right now, thinking about talk space, and many, many others, the Calm app. Um, so no, we're, we're seeing a lot of that globally uh, getting funded here in Europe too. Telemental health has really, has really taken off. As for uh, telehealth for uh, chronic care management, as I said, the more we take on population health for diabetes, uh, respiratory care, congestive heart failure, et cetera, as we take on payment for population health, there will be incentives to once somebody's diagnosed and knows what their protocols are to get more care at home in their hand through the phone, through their PCs, and increasingly through media, through um, over the over the television box um, videos, counseling, peer-to-peer -peer sessions for uh, 
self-care for both the clinical parts of your care and the mental health support parts with other patients, the Susanna Fox world of peer-to-peer healthcare, which we can do now with more people and especially more older people learning about Zoom and Microsoft Teams and such. So well beyond uh, Skype, more and more people are using these um, connect, connecting platforms for daily life, translating that into their healthcare. So I'm hopeful. I know these things uh, never change overnight, but with the uh, Omicron variant, bless it, uh, we're, we got this long, long endemic tail uh, to deal with this stuff, which is the uh, opportunity to continue to grow on what we've learned in terms of virtual care. You, you know, you, you bring up some interesting points and I, I, I'm, I'm gonna highlight it. Zoom as a word, has become part of the vernacular. I think that's a good thing. This whole interaction has become more natural. I've certainly experienced that, um, you know, not having to explain it. Um, you, you talk about mental health, and I like that. That's a good anchor point that I think essentially opens up. And it, it's a beachhead, in my view, because of the lack of resources combined with essentially the amplification in the COVID-19 that has really sort of made this not only more relevant, but also, I think, expanded it. We see it in bigger populations. We're certainly seeing it in children who I think were impacted. But one of the elements that you talk about is value-based care. And as I've watched that through the course of time, I think that is a driver, but it's not expanded to the extent that we would anticipate, given that that's a huge opportunity for both saving, but also delivering better care. Why is that not the case? Why do we not see a much bigger increase past the sort of 30% at most that I seem to see? I, I think this is gonna be an organic changing thing because the nation with all of the debt that we have, I'm talking about the US now, um, uh, and every nation is stressed financially and because of different reasons now uh, post pandemic, but, and the GDP forecasts because of uh, Omicron are going to be, are going to settle back combined with inflation in the consumer's eyes. We're broke, you know, financially, macroeconomically, there's this big economy, which is growing, but the uh, growing also um, any income inequality. And so the buck has to stop somewhere, which is part of the solution uh, in my mind over time and this is tied very much to politics. So I, I have to hedge it and say, we have midterms coming up in uh, just under two years from now, and then another presidential election two years after that. And you know the jury is out for a long time, wild cards flying around. But I have to say that this value thing will get traction, I believe, uh, because of uh, the fact that there's just so much cash to go around. And we have to pay for things differently, but we also have to change how we pay for certain things. And this gets to your point about push down on the health economy here, it, you know, the whack-a-mole game, costs go up over here. The one area America underspends vis-a-vis -vis every other country in relative terms is in the social spending that Joe Biden has talked about, the, the quote, soft infrastructure of education, childcare, and the stuff that 
uh, people here in Belgium where I'm living half the time now, or more next year, probably, depending what happens in the US and the, and the pandemic, um, there's more spending per capita on things like early childhood education and childcare for working parents and end of life care, right? Where people could die at home. Uh, and, you know, Shoshana Ungerleiter is a, is a hero in this in, in the US, uh, bolstering that, that discussion, along with Alex Drain, of course. Um, social care is that soft infrastructure. You can call it lots of other things, but it's the basic social determinant of health called education. Education for young people, education growing up. If you have education, you are set uh, probabilistically, right? In terms of risk managing, uh, the better education and the more good education you have younger. And if your mother had that education, which is Oprah's premise of funding education and for uh, girls in South Africa, she knows, she's read the data on this, that we fund education younger. You have a strong social, uh, so uh, strong basis for socioeconomic status, getting a good job, staying in the job that pays. In the US, a job that comes with health insurance, very important. So that economic stability, and then that allows you to move to a zip code, right? Your zip code, more important than your genetic code, which has clean water, clean air, food, lack of food deserts, good food, nutritious food, etc. Transportation access, safe neighborhoods, got to run, got to play. You need a neighborhood to play in, that's safe. Um, you know, I grew up in uh, south, southeastern Michigan, where uh, this week there was uh, gunshots in the county where I grew up at a school. When I grew up, you would, you know, you would never have predicted anything like this. So this is what we're talking about, this social um, isolation, social cohesion that we need. Um, but again, it, it's an ethos that starts with, do we love thy brother and sister? And do we want to fund a social infrastructure like that? And we're at this turning point now because of COVID where we learn so much about this. People who never knew about this concept of social determinants of health and call it what you will, social care, soft infrastructure. We get it now. The data are there. That became clear in the pandemic by April, May in the first uh, first couple of months where we saw the rate of death in uh, communities of color uh, and the rate of exposure uh, go up due to the nature of people's jobs, multi-generation households, density in those households, et cetera, and pre-existing conditions, which, you know, that's, that's huge for uh, being able to battle the complications of the pandemic. So, yeah, um, you know, there's a lot of moving parts and a lot of driving forces to align here for value-based care, but also it's not just about the medical care, it's about the social care and how we are born, grow up, and what, what buoys us. Um, I had great blessings on that front, so I don't have an excuse not to keep working hard for this, uh, for my fellow Americans and fellow humans everywhere. I, I think, you know, some great points, and I, again, other anchor points that I think, you know, pull out from a positive standpoint, the upside in healthcare from my perspective is, you know, the care for thy neighbor. I, we saw that 
you know, post any sort of major event, 9-11 was another classic example where everybody, you know, suddenly did things that you, you go, wow, I wish life was always like that. Same with the pandemic, you, you know, and obviously the hope is that we continue and we look back at that and go, well, that was a whole lot nicer. We should, you know, continue to experience that. And then I think importantly, the anchor point of education at the lowest or the earliest point in time and, you know, the support infrastructure, raising the whole ocean, which raises all the boats. I think that's the thing that, you know, most um, sort of drives this. As you think about the, the innovation. So one of the areas that I like to talk about is the technology where are we able to sort of add value to that? Uh, you know, do we have home health and, and you know, is things moving out into the, the home and the hospital? Yeah, um, we saw that start to happen just before the pandemic. In 2019, you saw Intermountain Healthcare working with various technology companies, Mayo Cleveland, Cleveland Clinic, and now, uh, moving acute care to the home. The hospital to home movement is a real thing. There's an alliance of, of organizations who, who work in that area. We see companies like Philips uh, doing a lot of work trying to uh, help uh, hospitals move care to the home. Why? Because beds are full, acute care beds are full. So if we can track people um, in terms of their doing well and flourishing, uh, from the hospital, we can help start to move people at home. The, um, the proviso there, there's always a caveat, we economists love to point out why it won't work, is one, broadband to the home. We need connectivity or this will not work, okay? Um, and that means really good, resilient networks to the home. Uh, I don't care how we do it. I'm just, I've been raising this for years. Broadband connectivity is a social determinant of health. Okay, wrote that in Huffington Post a few years ago. And now, of course, we get that. We know that from the pandemic. But also, okay, you get connectivity, but is the home set to be a good, healthy place for healthcare? If it's got lots of people in it, um, in the home and there isn't a dedicated place where somebody can sleep? Or is there a kitchen where food can be cooked? That's nutritious. Does that home have access to good food? So I'll note um, yesterday I, I put on my, my LinkedIn, the first online grocer uh, ever, Farmstead, got approval to do SNAP, deliver SNAP benefits and EBT benefits online so that now if that person has access to an app and broadband, they can order food online, get, snap, get their SNAP benefit to pay for it and have it delivered to their home. So we have a lot of abilities to scale these social determinants of health if we're really clever about it, like this Farmstead um, app may help do uh, in addition to many others. So yeah, it's not a panacea, but it's part of the solution. And these solutions are complicated, but yes, care to the home, to the right patient, right time with those provisos uh, in our heads. I, I think, uh, you know, you interesting that you, you highlight an issue that for so many of us, we would completely ignore, you know, the idea that there isn't a kitchen that you can prepare food in. And I, I have some personal experiences around this, uh, you know, for a variety of reasons. But one of the uh, areas that I constantly make the point is you need to walk a day in the shoes to really understand. 
And I think, you know, it gives me great hope on the upside of all of this, that not only can we move health care, but well care, and indeed all those social determinants and elements, a, a tremendous scope. You, you, you just highlighted one example of solving essentially a food desert crisis with a simple solution that essentially authorizes it. I, I'm just, I'm excited about that. Always a pleasure to talk to you. Jane, thank you so much for joining me today on the show. Thanks, Nick. Really appreciate it. And there you see, I have a real husband. There, there are his legs. <laughs> Take care. Despite some early rollback of the pandemic regulations that eased restrictions on the ability to deliver telehealth services, we have seen successes that have emerged. Mental health services were already in short supply and suffering burgeoning demand long before the pandemic unfolded. The impact of shutdowns and the economic devastation compounded these effects, creating further stresses on the mental health services and capacity, as evidenced by the big increases in prescriptions to treat these conditions. The industry, innovation and technology stepped up to the plate and there is no going back. These services lead the way in demonstrating the value proposition that is not only good for the patient, but also good for the clinicians in the system and the system itself. We are no longer limited by our geography or defined by our zip code. With the general introduction and acceptance of virtualization capabilities and tools. This week, your better pill to swallow is accepting the notion that we are broke and solving for this requires different thinking and approaches. Double down on solutions that not only focus on virtual care and capabilities, but include the provision of other services, not just broadband access, but far beyond into all the social determinants of health. Thanks for joining me, your host, Dr. Nick, on this week's edition of Healthcare Upside Down. Until next week, keep solving the business of healthcare as if your life depended on it, as one day soon, it will. That's all the time we have for today. You can find all of our episodes on your favorite listening platform by searching for Healthcare Now Radio. Also, check out our blog at ecgmc.com hud for summaries and commentary from each episode. Follow our show's social hashtag, HCUpsideDown. And join us each week as we work to solve the business of healthcare for everyone.